I would just hope that what I'm expressing to the listeners is, is what's important to me as far as time goes is how are we using it? You know, there's this geologic time, this fossil record perhaps, but then there's your own, you know, what are you preparing for? What are you integrating from? It's always something in every given moment. And how are you doing that? And then to what end? Who's that making you become at any given time? Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you back to episode 173 of the podcast that explores our place in time. And I think one way of characterizing our current temporal node is by recognizing just how much work we all need to do to stay sane amidst the turbulence, the loss, the confusion, which is why today I'm really glad to have Daniel Shankin of the TAM Integration Psychedelic Integration Counseling Service and uh, the organizer of the Psilocybin Summit join me on Future Fossils to talk about his work in one of the most sweet and soulful conversations that I've had on this show maybe ever. I really love advancing an intellectual discourse with these discussions, but I will always have a special place in my heart for conversations like this one where two people just come together in honesty and vulnerability and sit with real deep matters of the heart and profound vexing issues and allow them to dissolve in the solvent of compassion. Daniel's really, really good at this. I think if I ever wanted a guide for integrating my own experiences, I would go to him. And I'm very excited that he has invited me back again to the Psilocybin Summit, this time to moderate a panel discussion on Ecodelia with one of my greatest living inspirations, Richard Doyle, as well as Sophie Strand, who is a profound mythologist and psychedelic author, and Sam Gandhi, who is an Imperial College London psychedelics researcher whose work on psilocybin I find profoundly interesting. The lineup for this event, which runs from the 16th to the 20th of September, is just world-class and if you buy a ticket with my referral code, that's psilocybinsummit.com slash Garfield, then you'll save 10% on the already very fair and modest pricing to participate in this. I recommend at least going to the website and checking out the speaker lineup because, again, it's a very fine group of people, including plenty of former Future Fossils guests and plenty of other folks that really ought to be on the show. In this episode with Daniel, we talk about a variety of things, such as trying to be the kindest version of yourself, belief systems as spirit possessions, and how to hang with the worst parts of psychedelic capitalism. So I'm very grateful to have had this conversation with him because, as a lot of people I know, this has been a really rough year plus for me. There's been lots to grieve, and it feels on the tail of this year's second annual virtual Burning Man that some things are just never going to snap back into their old configuration. I've lost some really important people in my life this year, including my friend Mikey Fisher from Family Moons. 
one of the kindest and gentlest people I ever met in the dance music scene, someone who really helped me launch my career as a live painter when I was living in Boulder, Colorado. So this episode is devoted to Mikey and to anyone else who is suffering through all of these changes. Reach out to me or to someone if you need support. And actually, there's a really powerful thread that I started on Facebook asking people how they're dealing with all of the world's suffering right now that might help you find your way through all of this. You can find the link to that in the show notes. One more thing before we dive in to this conversation, which is, as always, I just want to thank everyone who supports this show on Patreon and to give shout outs to the new patrons who've signed on since this last episode. Zachary Buner, Travis Nutch, Yoan Matreya, Savannah McGee, and Roberta Vogel-Leutung. Y'all are my bread and butter. This is a completely listener-supported show because I am a stubborn crank who refuses to sell ads on Future Fossils, largely out of respect to you and the rest of the listening audience because we are all bombarded by that crap all the time. And it's just not worth it to me. But also because who in their right mind would actually run ads on this show? I mean, we're like dancing out here at the very edge of things, actively critiquing the kind of predatory capitalism that has infiltrated every second of our waking lives, trying to gather our attention into its profit extraction mechanisms. And when it comes to work of the mind and work of the heart, I find the most valuable things are often invisible to the economy, or at least difficult to measure in a way that makes them easy to pitch. So again, one more thank you to everybody supporting the show on Patreon, past, present, and future, which I hope includes you. And also, although I will not belabor this point, (laughs) I want to thank everybody who has been listening to and purchasing my music lately my latest release house ship on a hill that just came out especially folks who left reviews including christian lemp who says it's bringing up the somber but reassuring emotion i need to process these past 18 months and a link to that music and plenty of other music including the stuff that was used in the phase two and phase three fda mdma trials in the show notes Those of you who have been listening know that since the recent birth of my second child, I've been in a period of profound reflection on the way it is that I spend my time and to whom I sell it. Things are going to change here soon, and I'm going to give as much of my attention back to this show and to the scene that has sprung up around it as I can. With your help, together we can inspire and empower one another to make the scary leaps that we know we need to make amidst all this. That's all for now. Thank you. Enjoy this conversation with Daniel Shankin, and hopefully I will see you online at the Psilocybin Summit for our panel discussion on September 18th. Don't mute yourself during this recording because it will uh, pause your end of the recording.
That's charming. It's okay. We have good mics. Yeah. And not a lot of background noise. Although I have become aware that my chair squeaks more than I would like. Well, you know, that's actually a lovely place to start if you want to, you know, for a conversation about psychedelic integration, right? It's one of those simple observations that someone has that, that, I mean, that sounds like very much like a Ram Dass kind of thing. He's like, after 30 years of meditation, I realized my chair squeaks more than I would like. Yep. (laughs) I had a client once who apparently they were upset for somewhere along the line of five years that there was a street sign that would bang against the post at all hours of day and night. And then they took mushrooms. And then the next day they went to a hardware store and bought a 69 cent screw and bolted the thing down themselves. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, that's, I I worry that I am too much of that kind of person. You know, that, that uh, there's a street lamp right outside my window. And I've worried my wife talking about it, about how I'm going to buy a BB gun and put a hole in the street lamp. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think that's just because I'm not doing enough tripping. If, and if I were, I would have just gotten the BB gun and fixed it and made, you know, made no matter of the issue. Yeah, I mean, I I've always feel like there's two options and one is to do the thing. And then the other thing is to just stop worrying about it. Yeah. Well, it's it's uh, if you don't, it was if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I so there's this is a, perhaps a weird way to set off into this discussion, but uh, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Oh yeah, no, that's a good one. But no, I'm, I'm actually thinking about how in archaeology there's two different theories about humans and how we either adapt to our environments or we adapt our environments to us, right? So mm-hmm. it's like one is that's adapting your environment to you is niche construction. That's the you know, you're saying, okay, air conditioning, this is a mind over matter, control over nature or whatever. And, and, and I see those two strategies as being loosely equivalent to the, the masculine and, and feminine trajectories in magic, you know, where you get somebody, uh, typically the dudes in magic, the wizards are all like very, uh, I'm going to do this thing. At least, I mean, th- this is, it, it cuts both ways in the, in the lore, you know, love spells, etc. But like, typically the, the masculine approach is, is to transcend the problem in some way. Mm-hmm. And then the feminine approach is to align oneself with the problem and therefore make it not, not only not a problem, but like make it into something, you know, that's like transmute it into something else by, by transmuting oneself. I don't know. So anyway, we can, well, much <laughs> we can get to the personal stuff later. <laughs> but yeah you just made me think of you know in yoga practice there's effort and there's grace and in some ways these are two wings of of a bird you know that yoga asks us to do the things that help us get into the state and then to not do the things that don't mm. and so that's one thing but both of those are efforting but you know both of those are two edges of efforting whereas Grace has this sense of, well, there's nothing I can do. Like there's nothing I can do or cannot do to get me into the state where I need to to be. I really need to allow for the supernatural to just handle me because I'm I'm hopeless in some ways, perhaps. Is that true 
actually like on the Indian subcontinent, those those two things, or is that just a, a way that yoga refracts through Christianity in, in North America? Because that's very much the grace and good works duality that you see in, in, in Christian thought as well. I mean, to the best of my knowledge, those things are inherent in yoga practice. You know, we think about bhakti yoga and bhakti yoga has activities, but those activities are for the most part ones that just cultivate kind of more devotion to God, right? Mm. And then Raja Yoga is very much a sort of active path yeah, that I yeah, almost yeah. look at as more of a, when we're looking at, if we're looking at masculine and feminine, here the activity is kind of very masculine. It's very effortful and solar, right? Because when we, you know, if we look at it through a yoga lens, we're looking at kind of more like solar and lunar. And it's like, uh-huh. we're doing the activities that are sort of like burning out our karmas right for lack of a better whereas like the lunar is we're becoming mad with love Mm. loony we're becoming i've had to actively (laughs) as it were unlearn my association of of active the active principle with the masculine and the passive principle with the feminine that's like something Mm -hmm. that i don't know where i i emerged wet with that nonsense but like but it is it is true that if you think about the oldest timekeeping devices, so just to just to anchor this in, you know, ostensibly the the, the main themes of this show being, you know, ex- exploration of time, that the oldest timekeeping was for menstrual cycles, you know, and mm-hmm. so it's it's you know notches on a piece of bone, tracking uh, lunar phases. So that's actually I don't know that's very that's it, you are in that case in some sense, subject to or subservient within this sort of uh, cosmic order. And therefore, you know, I guess it's, it's in a, an Islamic sense, like a surrender or a submission to that order. But it is active. Like you are, you have to, you have to like really make a, a step to attune oneself. You know, I mean, people think about in music. For a time you do. Yes. There's a lots in yoga about tuning oneself like an instrument and so that's like you know people think about tuning as like the passive because uh, you're listening right you have to listen in order to tune and then act playing is is the the active but that's i don't know you good good players really listen and you know people that are good at tuning instruments it's a very active enterprise i don't know I don't know where we're taking this. But where I talk about, like, you have to tune yourself actively for a time. It's sort of, if you think about, like, dietary restrictions, it's like, I'm not going to eat dairy, and I'm not going to eat sugar, and I'm not going to eat this, and I'm not going to eat that. But then you sort of notice that you kind of really didn't want you to begin with. Mm. Right, you're really just restricting yourself in a way that's bringing you more into your own natural order as well, because you weren't. Because for the most part, we were raised in neurotic ways, neurotic and addicted ways. So it's like being in alignment with, you know, God, is perhaps our natural state, and we're just not, not there. So we have to actively do it until we don't have to actively do it. Is that do you do you sort of cleave to that interpretation? Pretty closely. I mean, I could probably agree with like six other ones too at the same time. That's what I came here for. That's what I was hoping from this discussion with you today. That I wasn't just going to go full out zealot to one point of view immediately. Right. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like uh, the famous Manhattan tour guide, Timothy Speed Levitch. He was in uh, Waking Life. He was the sort of madcap, manic tour guide on the top of the, the bus in that film, if you recall that one. That one will forever be stamped in my head because that was like the first time I had any mushrooms in my college dorm room was like just the dust of the tray that all my friends had consumed while they were committing to watch Waking Life. But he says, I refuse to be enslaved by a single perspective. And while I have since sort of tempered my stance on that, I'm, I'm not so much like, again, like a zealot about that. You know, like there are times when it's crucial to winnow it down and like prune the tree of your, your models and so on. For the sake of mm-hmm. something like we're gonna we're gonna have we're gonna work with one model right now. Well, the thing is, is to be honest, I'm just really trying not to go insane. And so, what do I have to do with my models and my mind in order to maintain some semblance of sanity, so that I could kind of walk through the world as the kind of the nicest person possible without causing too much fuss to the people around me? See, that's a great goal. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know a lot of people that are actually striving to be the nicest version of themselves that they can be. What are they trying to do? What else are you doing? Well, I mean, I, I, I hear a lot of people talk about money, but I, I hear, you know, in, in my circles, I think people are, are more likely to go evil through uh, seeking truth, actually. You know, like the, the people I know are, are committed to understanding. And I think the commitment to understanding is often a dangerous path in terms of you'll go you'll go mad yeah either that or i'm not that smart you know you posted (laughs) a thing you posted a thing on facebook about how divergent and creative your thinking was there was a little app a little study and you were in 90 you know you were like the 99th percentile or the whichever one it was and then all of your friends were 94 percent, 96 percent, 93 percent, 98 and i was 90 there were actually, so was, there were like three. I was the lowest guy on your list. No, you weren't. There were like three other people. First of all, I was glad that a few people criticized the methodology because. Sure, you know, it's, it, it's potentially flawed. Yeah. I mean, it's really only measuring the sort of lexical distance between the words mm-hmm. that you're offering this test in common use. And, and so, you know, it's uh, like anything, you know, once you know what's being measured, you can kind of hack it. So, and then second of all, there were like three or four people that scored higher than I did in the respondees, which was like fully a third of the, mm-hmm. the responses I read, which to me suggests like, if this is really a measure of, of lateral thinking, that the people in the conversation around this particular podcast, like the scene here is uh, remarkably strange, like far more creative by that measure than than i actually you know it's it's just nice i don't know if i mean that, if that sort of uh disarms the point you were trying to make but i was I think, well the, yeah. the, the point i was trying to make is i was 16 years old on lsd with a bunch of punk rockers and somebody asked me if i wanted you know like did i want god or love or the truth or something like that and i was like i want the truth <laughs> okay. you know this understanding i, I I want to understand all the things. And maybe because my mind is the way it is, is that as I tried to approach the truth, my mind started to become unhinged. And 
things weren't going well for me and I couldn't understand. And a lot of my insights were psychotic, right? There's this, the, the term psychotic insights where you just make connections that aren't there. And you just understand, you, you grab for reality in a way that like doesn't really work. Mm. And I think a lot of people are doing that. They are coming up with psychotic insights, neurotic insights, things that are not useful or beautiful or true even. And that was happening to me. So I took a hard left into just, you know, simplicity and kindness, you know, about eight years later. <laughs> it took about eight years for that to become untenable. Those eight years are like the, what, the missing years in your New Testament? Like those, <laughs> it's, it's like, lo, a Daniel was born and then he took some acid at 16. And the next thing you know, he's doing psychedelic integration and bhakti yoga and we're just going to not talk about the eight years in the middle there. The time that he would dance naked on stage in front of 600 of his closest friends. Oh, well, I mean, that doesn't sound like the fruit of a psychotic insight necessarily. Well, the thing about it is I didn't want to be doing it. Oh. I was just compelled. I had to. Ooh, compulsion. Okay, so let's talk about compulsion. Let's. I am of the mind to treat belief systems and attendant behavioral patterns at all at all levels you know whether whether we're talking about something sort of like minor like i believe i need to go to the store today or 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 major like you know i i adhere to a particular religious set of tenets and and allow them to direct and order my life whatever size of that we're talking about i think of those as a form of possession you know, and I, this is actually striking me that this this way of seeing is becoming more common. Where used to be kind of universal, and it fell out of fashion in the modern world to think like this, and now it's coming back into vogue. But it's it's this eldritch thing about being, you know, believing in you know, like nationalism, for instance, is a kind of a religion with a kind of a deity. You know, that there's like a spirit of like the United States of like America flag. Yeah. And that, that, that spirit has many faces and that it's, it, you know, the, the power of Christ compels me, you know, these, that this is uh that we are compelled and, and to our, you know, the, the behaviors that we enact in this world through, through the memes that infest us. And I'm curious in your practice, Maybe we should roundabout our way to this by just talking about like how you went from dancing naked in, on stage in front of your friends to leading a psychedelic integration work. But I mean, at, at some point, I yoga, curious, yoga practice. Yeah, there was this real. There's this book on Zen or Taoism or something like that, which had cute little pictures in it. I mean, it's like you know Taoism for dummies or beginners or something like that. Who knows? And there were two pictures and there was one of like some fancy guy. And then there was sort of the archetypal Taoist sage. And in the cartoon, you know, the fancy guy is saying, and I can write horses and I can do archery and I can write poems and I, I'm a businessman and he's doing all this thing. And the sage says, I only play Go, you know, the, 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 <laughs> yeah. the Chinese game Go. And, you know, it says like, if you want to master a thing you basically you should just do that 
And I remember a time when, you know, I was, I was a yoga teacher for a while and I was trying to be a good yoga teacher and I had a yoga studio and this was actually before the studio, but I had moved back to my hometown of Philadelphia and I was like 26 and it's a fun place, you know, Philly, you know, in 2002, 2008, between, you know, and there, there was a fun place to be like 25, 26 years old. There was a lot to do. And at one point I realized like, oh, like if I have choices, like I have to pick the yoga thing. I just, you know, it's like whatever the other stuff is, it's like, I have to do my practice or I'm not going to be any good at it. And so I just did that and it seemed to work reasonably well for a time. I don't think I missed out on that much. You know, people stopped inviting me over to their house to like watch football. I didn't want to do that anyway. You know, I was like, oh, you know, he's going to be training in Thai massage that weekend. He's busy, you know, or whatever it was, you know, whatever healing arts, whatever was happening at the yoga studio, I would just do that. Does that answer your question? Well, I mean, does that, and then, and then at some point that just dovetailed seamlessly into psychedelic integration work? Um, so, you know, for a time I was teaching those loud, fast yoga classes to like, you know, 40, 50 people and stuff. And I sort of realized that I enjoyed teaching slower, quieter yoga to fewer people. And then I liked teaching very slow, quiet yoga to very few people. And then I really just kind of liked meditating with like one. <laughs> and that became sort of, so yoga teaching became meditation, teaching became coaching. Because with coaching, you get to meditate with people, but you're talking about it while it's happening. Ah. You know, you get to get into a shared meditative space with somebody where you're kind of tracking and exploring, you know, the twists and turns of the mind. And that was really interesting to me, this sort of internal meditation, internal coaching, as opposed to like, you have to hit sales numbers. You know, it's like, I'm, I'm not trying to necessarily push somebody across, you know, beating their earnings for, you know, quarter two. And what started to happen was people wanted to talk to me more and more about their psychedelic experiences. I guess they could smell it on me. And, you know, I was doing other work in the psychedelic. I was helping people with events. You know, I was working with a couple of different, you know, on, on a couple of different websites, news websites and things of that nature. And so I was sort of, you know, around and the integration circles were very attractive to me because I had a lot of stuff to work out. So I was going to integration circles. And then I was like, you know, there aren't any integration circles in Marin. I want one. I want an integration circle in Marin and nobody else is going to do it. So I guess I'll rent out the acupuncture center. I'm shocked, you know? by the way, that Marin is not just in swarming with this. Well, there, there is stuff, but it's very private. You know, it was like some very private stuff. And it was mostly for people who were practicing together. You know, it was like people would, you know, do Wachuma and then they would integrate with each other and that kind of thing. And if you were in that club, then you were in that club, but there wasn't something, you know, for the rest of us, as it were. And so I started doing that while I was doing, you know, I was actually, I was actually working with a lot of artists at the time. I was working with some artists and some tech folks and stuff like that and just doing regular coaching. And then the psychedelic stuff started just, you know, 
gaining speed, you know, gaining traction. And so that's kind of how it went down. Excellent. Janky footbridge from that to that, that question I was setting up. You know, so my question for you, I guess, is simply because you were talking about being compelled to do stuff and having these yes. psychotic insights. And then, you know, this, you have this practice and I'm curious in, in your practice, how much this issue of like compulsion and because, I mean, I get the sense, this is what I'm getting at here. Uh, people go into these, into these spaces and I feel like loosely speaking, I see people adopt one of two approaches. One is the, you know, sort of purification approach of mm -hmm. cleansing oneself of, of uh, their programming, you know, or realigning themselves so that they're not, it's like spa day, you know, for the psychic ecosystem or whatever. I, an adorable child has just entered this, this podcast. I got a text saying that he wanted to see daddy. And so who am I to say no to the baby? No, this, this is a child friendly. This is one of those great things about COVID. And this is the great thing about COVID as far as I can tell, which is just that, that everybody's working from home and, and bringing their kids onto the video calls. And so, well, and you're also like a new dad for the second time. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I mean, it's, it's important. It's very important to me that, that children are seen in this world that, you know, that people are not just going off to a building where their family is somewhere else and, and they all only know each other as, as these adults out of context, you know, and it's like your coworkers, you see their kids now on these calls. Right. And, it's and what's nice is, is like, I think it was Robert Bly and maybe Iron John where he talks about, you know, if kids don't see what their parents do for work, they won't trust them. Yes. Uh, do you trust me? I am. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I trust <laughs> <you> too. <laughs> That's off to a great start. So, so yeah. So, so there's, there's this. Uh, you know, my friends. There, I, I, there are certain kinds of practice that I won't, I won't uh, call out specifically. But like, there are certain kinds of practice that have uh, an emphasis on purification. You know, and I think that the the, the error there is. It to, you know, see everything as an opportunity to, you know, sort of dissociate yourself from it, you know, chase out parts of yourself that actually need some reckoning. And then there's the other... And there's so much self-hatred yeah. in here. There can be... Uh, purification can be deeply motivated by self-hatred. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Yes, puritanical stuff that's been, like, sort of modernized and do whatever. But, like, then there's also... The other approach, which I think I'm kind of more inclined to ad adopt, is the uh, like non-dual or, or kind of like tantric thing, where you know a demon appears to you, and you're like, oh, that's just part of me in this like higher sense of 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 the self, you know. And so you're you're working with this ecology of internal stuff, and and, and I think the error that can be made in in that approach is allowing something a little bit more real estate than it deserves. So I'm curious, you're thinking around all of this stuff because, you know, I have felt in some of my moments of encounter with what I have come to understand as sort of other self or like 
as it embodies in another person, but as it embodies in these sort of other uh, uh, faces that it takes within my own psyche, I guess that, you know, I've, I've been on the fence back and forth over the years about, you know, which strategy is appropriate when a particular character is giving me grief. And I'm, I'm curious how you work this fence line in your own practice. Right. Well, I do that kind of parts work with just about everybody. And I teach it in my class. I do a, this meditation class called Meditation for the Journey, right? And it's hopefully giving people skills of focus and attention that they can bring to their psychedelic journeys so they can have a little bit more agency. Because a lot of times people, you know, the go with the flow thing is very strong and that works for the most part. But, you know, you're not really letting go or going with the flow if you're just being like slammed by waves, you know, it's like yeah, a lot of people yeah. are just being knocked all over the place without any say so from themselves. And so I want people to have like a little bit of ground to choose because of what you're saying, because of our tendencies, our tendencies. I'm, I'm digging the vitamin regimen that's happening here. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I supplement mercilessly on these calls, folks. It's thanks. Th- thanks also for for invoking the the unseen <laughs> All right. Yeah. Um, so this getting blown by the wind and the realist things getting real estate that they don't deserve. There are parts of us that need need love that it hasn't gotten. Right. That's what these demons are. Right. The demons. And Mickey and Mallory said this in Natural Born Killers. Only love can kill the demon. Mm. Uh, and <laughs> so these so these if you can reference random movies. I can. Uh, no, I just think, that's, uh, I think it's just great that that's the movie that you're know, like this, like <laughs> this sweet, soft-spoken guy. You're like, and then in natural born killers. <laughs> so these things come to us and they need certain things. You know, they seem to want to, they seem to want our destruction, right? But they need love and we give them love and they transform in some ways usually, or, you know, sometimes it takes a while you know, and there's parts of our lives that need more love and attention and care and gratitude or forgiveness or what have you, or boundaries. Sometimes they need something fierce. That That's a thing. But we have this almost sort of like kind of therapeutic desire. We, we really want to wrestle with things sometimes more than they need to be. We really want to get into it, like this whole culture of like over-processing stuff. Um, you know, there was one guy I met at an AMA program who said the great thing about meditation is you don't have to talk about stuff all the time. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know if you've had this. It's like, Oh, I really should talk to my wife about this thing that's bothering me. And then instead you sit down and you meditate for 20 minutes and you realize you're just being a baby. Mm. Right. (laughs) It's just like, Oh, okay. I can just get over it. I'm just being, just having a temper tantrum. I can let it go. Certainly talking about a thing does magnify it or can you know, it's not uh-huh. necessarily going to unlatch you from the thing. You could end up in therapy for years. It's just like becoming a wine connoisseur of your own bullshit. Yeah. And so there are some times when it's, you just end up, yeah, in kind of enriching the neuroplastic connections. Uh, whereas what it really needs is to just be like enough already. And there is this great term in the Yoga Sutras, right? So we've quoted Natural Born Killers and the Yoga Sutras, where it, which is called <laughs> Praktipaksha bhavana, and bhavana means mood. It's often a devotional mood. Uh, and praktipaksha means cultivate the opposite. 
And so there is this recognition that sometimes just wallowing around in your self-pity or just, you know, fuel, you know, just feeding into your anger and punching pillows and screaming is, is not the thing. At some point, you're just, well, let's cultivate loving kindness. Mm. Let's cultivate forgiveness, like cultivate the opposite of the thing. And that's how it works in Ayurveda, too. If you're too hot, you add cold. If you're too cold, you add heat. You know, it's kind of not really rocket science. You know, it's very simple, but it's, you know, very sophisticated as you, as the binary expands, you know, as you go from zero one to zero, 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 one, 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 you know, kind of thing. I want to take this opportunity with you to call to something that I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, my buddy Mitch Mignano calls me a psychedelic conservative because one of the things I like to do is play sympathy for the devil about certain things like, and in this case, it's equivalence grouping and typological systems. You know, there's a lot of really smart stuff that can be said in criticism of like our models and our, our you know, the, like don't box people in, you know, like, you know, the Enneagram or whatever is oppressive, this kind of stuff. But I appreciate why people want categorical systems by which they navigate the world. You know, I, mm-hmm. appreci- I appreciate why people want you know, like why there are two kinds of people is like such a, such a common statement. And, uh, you know, I think there's, I I imagine, and this is sort of an invitation to talk about this. I imagine that sort of forgiveness for one's cognitive limitations, uh, is a big part of integration work that, that, you know, just accepting that like, you know, because you get into these states where you're like, I can perceive 100 dimensions of space and time, you know, where you're like, again, like asking for a friend, but it does seem like there is, you know, the so-called psychotic insights, there are these like superpowers that, that you can access uh, with the mind in these experiences. And, you know, at least for me, like in my early acid years, you know, coming down and be, becoming a human again was one of the, you know, that was that was what really needed the work was like accepting the fact that I wasn't going to be able to to think in like a hundred dimensions all the time, you know, that I'm just like some dumb schmuck again. To I mean, to what end? You know, what good does it do anybody to think in a hundred dimensions? Although it's a it's a shallow and and sort of delusional form of liberation. It is it's a form of liberation in the relative sense, you know, of like more rooms in the house. It's just more, it's just bondage in hundred dimensions. Exactly. It's exactly. Duality. It's just duality and self-centeredness in a hundred dimensions instead of one to three, whatever we inhabit. I don't even care. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the Buddha was walking down the street, he was walking through the forest and he comes across a yogi who's meditating on the banks of the river and the yogi, he recognizes, if not the Buddha, he realizes he's in the presence of a very high soul. And he wants to show off. And he was like, hey, man, guess what? Like, I can walk on water. Like, I've been doing my yoga practice and I can walk on water. And the Buddha's like, cool, man, show me. And so the guy walks across the water and he walks back. And the Buddha's like, yeah, that's really cool. And the yogi says, it took me 15 years to learn to master that. And the Buddha looks at him and he goes, bro, the ferry's only a rupee. And so, you know, to what point is our liberation actually liberation? And to, to what extent is it just like um, um, Stuart that taught to, to get lowbrow again, Stuart from Mad TV? Look what I can do. Who yeah. cares what you can do? 
you know, who, like, like, who does it serve? Like who, like what, like to, yeah, to, to what end, I guess is, is the big question. So to what end is, I, you know, I think about this a lot, uh, I, from the perspective of like the technological evolution and f- forgive me for taking this particular walk, but I, 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 I want to make a connection here, which is that, you know, people out there, like what you're, what you're talking about here seems to be a, a bomb on or a prescription for a particular kind of crazy that, that because I recognize in myself, I'm very sort of sensitive to uh, elsewhere, as it were, which is the desire to map everything and to sort of pacify one's, one's core fear through that understanding, you know, to see the system, you know, people want to map things. They want to put up security cameras. The end game of this, right. Is this, um, you know, people often reference uh, Jose Luis Borges and him, you know, the story in which he, he writes about a a one-to-one map of the world. Like you've created a map that's as detailed as, as the, the world itself. And, Obviously, like that's not very useful, right? Because now you just have a whole other world. To, you know, it's it's not a shorthand. It doesn't help you navigate anything. But then, like, also there are costs of creating a map, an ever more detailed map. And one of the costs is just you know the the material costs. Like if you know if you're thinking about like all the servers that Google Maps requires to to run and and serve maps to everybody on the planet. Right, and sometimes there's a picture on there that the, you go down to street view and you mm. can see the car you drove three years ago. So it's not even up to date. Right. right. We're talking about time. It's like, this is map is not even true anymore. Right. And, and so that's an interesting point. You know, when my, a few years ago when uh, Nikki and I were looking at, at Google earth on, you know, all the places we'd ever lived, we were going back. And then one of them was the old house that my mother and my brother and I lived in, in, in Kansas city after my parents split up and it was illegally foreclosed upon in 2009 and we, and we lost that house. And the Google Earth image was of the moving truck that my mom had rented mm-hmm. while we were getting kicked out of that house. And I was like, son of a bitch, like eight year old photograph of heavy, the most horrible thing that had ever happened to my family or the second most horrible thing. And at any rate, so like, that's the other piece of it, right? Which is that the map, the idea of like this unlimited, this is the, an idea we bring up all the time on the show. And I'm curious, it links to your work in, in a way I, I'm getting to, I swear, which is... Right, but I'm going to talk about the one thing that you said that you might not have realized anyway, but go okay. ahead. All right. Well, so it's the irreconcilability of the sort of perfect memory of the digital with the the imperfect memory of the of the organic and like the body and the way that in this modern effort to know and therefore control or transform the world that we have created a world for ourselves that is every bit as unknowable mysterious uh you know sort of precarious threatening as whatever we had replaced it with and i think about this project as sort of creating a psychedelic experience for the entire planet. Like the internet is basically LSD, but it's acting on the biosphere and the noosphere. 
And so for me, I think the most fruitful metaphor in sort of like characterizing what it is to live through the digital revolution is that it's a collective psychedelic experience where, you know, we're being challenged to enact in a completely different way the boundaries of, you know, self and other and like the boundaries between any other, any kind of categories are being transfigured in this, in this thing. And it's really uncomfortable in the same way that often the first hour of an acid trip is uncomfortable. And it seems like, you know, to the degree that a bad trip, your recipe for that is like trying to hold on to, you know, one way of thinking and experiencing and living in this world when the force of something else is, is overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And this is (laughs) what I'm saying is like, I'm sort of like, this is, this is the milieu in which you do your work is that I feel like both the potential benefits of psychedelics as a way of navigating this are really key, but also that the world is already now so explicitly and obscenely psychedelic in some aspects that I feel like just living online requires psychedelic, like the work that you do is the work that will be required for people just to live within the, the environments that we have built for ourselves you know, because they are trippy as fuck. So that's, that's the sort of conceptual stew I wanted to cook up for you and, and, and serve and uh, get your thoughts on. One of the things you said was that we make maps to somehow placate or pacify our fear. It's my experience that that doesn't actually work. You know, that that is a, a Band-Aid fix because the world is so unknowable. You know, it's like, we, I, I don't even know all the things that are going on in this room right now. You know, temperature, humidity, right? You know, like the amount of pressure on my thing, what's happening with the radiator. Like, I, I don't even, I have no idea what's going on. And the extent to which I'm okay with that is kind of the extent to which I'm okay. <laughs> you know, for me to kind of run around and try and detail all that stuff is not going to be that helpful because it's going to change from moment to moment. And I'm going to lose sight of what's really happening in the world and my relationship to it, because my relationship is, is, you know, only minutely affected in a lot of ways by the temperature and the humidity and things like that. It's the adapt, you know, the adaptability thing. So I think that it's good for us to get as real with ourselves about what we know, not only what we do know, but what we can know. You know, if I'm trying to inscribe, document the entire universe instead of living in it, what fun is that? Unless you're just a born documentarian, you know, it's like, what is my, what is my true nature and what is a, a perversion and a degeneration of my nature into something else that is fueled by negative emotions that I could maybe just spend a little time with those for a little while and it might work itself out. It's kind of like meditating instead of processing. And I do think that this is useful for people, you know, the world that we live in, it's harder to people have a greater understanding of psychology and, you know, the psychology of relatedness than they ever have before. And our worlds are more complex and move faster with more people in them than they have ever before. And so the ability to flow from a place of you know, what's really real for us and true for us, as opposed to just sort of jumping, just, you know, doing a, a game of parkour, the floor is lava with our own emotional life. 
And it's really fulfilling when I get to, when somebody actually, you know, there was a time before I, I talked about psychedelics when I was, was talking to people about their tech companies or whatever, you know, their event series or their, you know, festival thing or whatever the hell it was. And we got to kind of wrestle with interrelatedness and productivity and creating what we wanted to create in the world. And one of the, the downsides of this is I get shunted more, you know, sometimes more often into the real depths of people's psychic lives, which is fun, but it's really fun in relationship to what they're doing in the world. So when like I get to play with like a tech leader who's like, oh, this is how this psychedelic stuff is going to make me a better leader and create a different culture for my team. Like, that's really fun. Is that what you were saying that you're getting at? Is that like creating a psychedelically inspired way of moving through the world? There's some of that in there. And then, you know, maybe to point this a little bit more is that it seems as though your work is going to be more and more obviously helpful to folks that are not actually taking psychedelics. So, so people come to me, I, I, people, people will do psychedelics for the first time and they say, I got to get my mom to do this. Right. It's like they automatically, which kind of makes sense because there's this kind of mycelial nature, right? The mushrooms sort of want to spread and the psilocybin kind of wants to, you know, the, the food of the psilocybin is minds, you know, it wants to spread from mind to mind to mind, and it wants to do so in a, an efficient manner. So it makes sense that it would want to go to the family members of the people who would ingest it, you know, and those are the people <laughs> we care about, right? You know, if you just look at how mycelium works in the world, like it's, it's efficient, right? So it's like, let's go to my friends and family. Let's go to the friends and family, friends and family discount. So people want to do that right? They want to just give psychedelics to everybody when they get turned on for the first time. I could care less if anybody ever does any psychedelic. I really could care less. And, and the thing is, I can outsource that desire because drugs sell themselves, right? There's enough of just, you know, like, I don't need to want people to take psychedelics. Um, I need to want people to take care of their minds better and prepare themselves and integrate themselves and to meditate themselves and to journal and spend more time in nature and think about what's really important to them and, you know, figure out what kind of person they want to be. And then, you know, that works with or without medicines and sacraments, which is dope. Yeah. I, I see this thread through things where it's like Silicon Valley adopts mindfulness companies want, they're bringing in mindfulness trainings and that kind of thing. And then it turns out that, that uh, mindfulness is found in, in these studies to reduce a person's motivation to actually engage in the desk job where they got the mindfulness training. Well, although it doesn't necessarily reduce their productivity, it just produces, it reduces their nationalism. Yeah, so rah rah, I'm a company guy. It's just more like, can I just do the thing I love, please, and leave me alone? Maybe the just like the, the psychedelic part of it, coming at it for chewing chewing this hoagie from the opposite end that you just articulated all this. That as the world gets more and more psychedelic, maybe psychedelics themselves become less and less a matter of importance, and 
the integration work becomes more and more obviously part of like a daily nutritional kind of requirement for people regardless of what they are because we're all inside the psychedelic is kind of what i'm getting at it's like that mm -hmm. it seems like a lot of people right now you look at the effloration of chronic you know disorders of anxiety and, and depression and so on and it is like just like people are just having a bad trip well people are potentially on a planet that is I, I almost wanted to say dying planet but i don't know if that's true but a planet that is continually and increasingly inhospitable to human life while participating in you know an economic system that is increasingly inhospitable to human life right and so you know anxiety is not a new thing anxiety i think you know it, it, it's you know it's been documented since the 19th century but yeah we're we're being continually alarmed that something something's amiss in a potentially fatal way and you know using psychedelics in sort of like a brave new world fashion to go on a vacation to placate the masses so, you know going off into you know your soma vacation in jamaica so that you can come back and you know participate more in your own destruction is uh is anxiety producing and so it makes sense that we're anxious and then the question is you know what do we do about that which is i think what you're going to figure out with Richard Doyle in this conversation, I had a conversation with Richard recently that um, kind of went this very direction. So with Richard Doyle and Sophie and uh, Sam Gandhi, you guys are going to figure out the answer to this, aren't you? At the Psilocybin Summit. Well, I'll just let Rich give everybody the answer. I'll just try to stand out of his way. And <laughs> Rich and Sam and Sophie. Well, what if Sophie knows? Sophie definitely knows. And Sam who, <laughs> Sam, who I who I don't know super well, but I'm 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 guessing Sam knows too. Yeah, so, yeah. But uh, so you were saying you you had a, a nice conversation with him. Yeah, we decided to do. I'm I'm doing some pre-recorded talks for the summit too this year mm -hmm. because it is an awful lot. Like in April, we did two tracks. And it was exhausting. It was like a lot to have two tracks running at once. And so we're doing some pre-recorded talks that people can access early. And so we've recorded one and uh, it's a blast. Yeah. I am woefully remiss in not getting him on the show sooner, but he's just one of these people with whom conversation is always so intense and personal that mm. I've just never, It's it's always felt strange to me to like, you know, I don't have this with anyone else, really, where I'm, like, weird about inviting them onto the show. But there's mm -hmm. something about Rich where it just cuts so deep that... What will happen? What's the fear that if he comes on the show, what, what is the worst-case scenario? No, it's, it's just more like... Well, a couple of years ago, I was texting with him, and I sent him a gif of an alligator snapping turtle, a guy holding this turtle, and then holding it like a weapon kind of and like biting this other guy on the ass with it. And I just thought it was the funniest thing that this like frat boys were like intentionally like jackass style, like intentionally biting each other on the ass with this turtle. And mm -hmm. he was very upset with me for sending him this. 
this was not long after he had killed all of his social media accounts. And, you know, as, as he went deeper into his practice, you know, to the point about like, you know, the path of purification and, mm-hmm. you know, he just got to this point where he was like, memes are just mind parasites. And like, why are you wasting my attention with this? You know, why are you allowing yourself to be infected by this crap? And I was like, because it's funny, you know? No. And, and it just like, ever since then, I, I do actually have an old conversation with him on record before I started this, back when I was at the editor for a visionary art magazine that I'll link to, I guess, in the notes here. But ever since he snapped at me about the snapping turtle, I've been a little uh, careful about the concern is that the podcast might be like construed as a, an extractive gesture with him, you know, that, that it might interfere in some way with our ability to just meet on level ground and be mm. ourselves in conversation, you know, and that it becomes weird and performative. And Have you asked him if he feels that way? No, I mean, and the fact is that he's he's quite happy to, you know, do this summit and to yeah. be on record at the summit, you know. But it just and it was just, quite happy to do time. an additional one of his of solo. Yeah, as well. I am curious. Well, one thing that you when you said I'm like really happy that he doesn't have social media because all I do on social media is make really lowbrow memes. Oh yeah. <laughs> like terrible memes that that occasionally that I'm embarrassed to look back on and be like I can't believe I did that like because you know we talk and it's different yeah but I have this personality that likes to express itself in that kind of snarky way but see I think in your case I mean that's the thing is that for me and this is a thing that he and I I hope one day will be able to really like hash out because I think it's just a, I see the meme as this like gorgeous thing, you know, like he, he wrote an entire book about flowers and and pollination and symbiosis and mm-hmm. attention and how like the flower is this rhetorical device that gathers the attention of pollinators and how, you know, that this, how this is related to the the influence that psychedelics have on the human brain and on the evolution of consciousness. And I was like, the meme is just like a digital flower. And I think, but that's his problem with it. It's like, we don't actually disagree. It's that, mm-hmm. it's, it's that maybe we just like seesaw and like at any given time, one of us is more paranoid about it and the other mm-hmm. more metanoid. I'm not sure. I did write something at one point. I forget where I posted or where I shared it about how dense a meme can be, meaning wise how much information and nuance you can stick into a hundred pixel square. Oh yeah. And I really kind of like nudging around with that. Uh, I think it's really fun to be able to hit um, a bunch of different chakras at once, if you will. Well, I mean, it's the, it is on the one hand, I see it as like approaching the Terrence McKenna visual telepathy, like, eschatological evolution of human communication kind of stuff you know that like dance is part of it so are emoji so are memes and that like all the stuff that you see people in in the psychedelic community quote-unquote doing are these sort of you know the skunk works 
and I mean that, and that's his whole point with that book is is that like all of human art and language and and all of this stuff is coming out of this asymptotic attempt to f the ineffable, you know, to 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 take this completely unspeakable, profound experience and and relay it to somebody, and that you know that that we have big brains because big brains are sexy. It's like your fancy guy, right? And that that's actually the problem. That's the problem is that like we are so tilted toward the incentives to be fancy guy are so very strong because that's like yes. how we how we got to where we are. It remains baffling to me that but at the same time maybe it's just because he's so sensitive to the ways that we technologize attention. Mm-hmm. It's just urging me to wear gloves while I'm working in the furnace or something. It's not a bad idea. Yeah. I think that and what is coming together, what's flowering for me is, because this is a podcast about time. Ostensibly. Yeah. <laughs> I would just hope that what I'm expressing to the listeners is, is what's important to me as far as time goes is how are we using it? You know, this, there's this geolo- geologic time, this fossil record perhaps, but then there's your own you know, what are you preparing for? What are you integrating from? It's always something in every given moment. And how are you doing that? And then to what end? Who is that making you become at any given time? So to that point, there was one real specific question I have for you that I want to make sure we get to, which is some of your memes, which I love. And again, we will link to that Instagram account in the show notes. Some of them are mercilessly critical of organ of organizations that have cropped up to parasitize the emergent space of psychedelic industry or whatever. You know, that there's like now that money can be made, there are people out there trying to file patents for psilocybin therapy that uses a couch, for instance. And, mm-hmm. and I know that you and I see similarly about these efforts. And I'm curious kind of what, what kind of sense you make of it, what kind of peace you've made with this stuff, even as you tilt your spear against these fools. I'm curious what you think of the dark side of, because like I, I've told you before, you know, I'll just come out and say it on the show. Like I'm one of dozens of people that contributed 10 years of, my own time and attention to writing stuff for reality sandwich on an honor agreement. And, you know, none of it was ever paid, but it was, you know, we all felt like we were engaged in the, you know, this project together. And then that's, that website was stolen by Delic corporation, which is now throwing all of these big psychedelic events. So they stole the copyright to thousands of pieces of writing, you know, dozens of which were my own. Mm-hmm. And these people are portraying themselves as like, you know, the psychedelic media company. And it's, it's shit like this that, you know, like I see as almost like I'm glad that I'm not fully identified with this scene because it's just getting so complicated. And so, and, you know, certain parts are, of the pond have been pissed in so, so fiercely. And yet here you are. And like, I regard you and a lot of the folks that you bring in on your events, you know, as, a, as you, the people that you curate for the psilocybin summit, like I see this other side of it, which is really hopeful and grounded and loving. And it's just, you know, the space has gotten so extreme 
like the darkness and the lightness of the people working around psychedelics. It's just unreal. It's like the most awesome people that you'll ever meet. And also these like predators, you know, and I'm just curious what you think of all of that and how you, how you move through this kind of intensely weird stuff that's happening in that space now. Um, I actually, I, I, I have to talk to my clients about this kind of stuff a lot. You know, people show up for people show up for coaching and they want to complain about, they want to use their hour to complain about other people. And I don't know if that's really a good use of their hour, you know? And, and I, I want to ask them like, you know, again, what are they guided by and what is the work you know, you have a body of work. You have a, a not insignificant body of work that you've put out into the world, right? You have things to say and things to tell people. And some of that got stolen and that sucks, but it's still out there. And there's still a bunch of other stuff that you have yet, yet to do. I have work to do. I have a, a body of work that I like to share with people on a lot of different levels and a couple of different ways. And I really want to focus on that. And so I do. So, and I don't have a lot of time or energy for stuff that's not that. And, and it's not, and other stuff that's not my stuff is not as glamorous as maybe it used to be. Or I think that maybe there was a time when I thought I was going to, here's, the, here's a, a thing about the way I, I grew up. Is is um you know they say oh well what would you do if you didn't care what anybody thought of you, <laughs> you know, right you know like if other people if other people's opinions of you didn't matter, and I very early on realized that it was shown to me that most people didn't approve of me, you know I was sort of like ADHD and sort of spazzy and you know, not particularly, not necessarily appropriate. And that turned into snark, you know, becoming snarky and sort of a disaffected teenager that, you know, was going to search for truth. And, and then, you know, later on, you know, things shifted. We talked about that. So I'm kind of aware that most of those things don't want me. And also I don't want them. And so I don't really know every once in a while, you know, I read an article or somebody tells me a thing and gets me a little worked up and I stick my opinionated self into a meme and I fire it off into the void. And it's gotten to the point where I'm pretty aware, you know, it's, it's 17,000 followers, not the biggest account, not the smallest account. It's not nothing. I'm aware that, you know, if I make a meme about a particular company, like they're, they're going to see it. You know, people have told me, oh, I sent your meme to the CEO of such and such. <laughs> uh, you know, they're going to see it. But there's people that I have beautiful relationships with that we create new possibilities in their lives and the world in general if I work with them doing the stuff that I'm good at. And so for me to spend a lot of time doing other stuff is kind of a disservice to the world. Like I really like I've got to get in front of the people who want to work with me, but maybe don't know I exist yet. You know, somebody told me that like, I was like, I, that they, I, I've got this great client. You're like a secret. It's like, I can't believe I discovered the secret that is like this work. It's not me. It's like the work, you know, it's like, I've had amazing yoga practices with shitty teachers because I just did the pose. It's like, 
you can have a great triangle pose with a lousy teacher. You just do the pose. So, I mean, so do you think, do you think that you're, that when you are openly vocally critical, that this is like a fumble for you in your practice, that it's a distraction? No, no, it's not a fumble. It's, it's a, like I said, we're allowed to have personalities. We're not only allowed to have personalities, we have them. Sometimes in this, uh, this quest for purification, you know, or enlightenment, we think that we're going to file down our personalities, you know, that we like chicken cheesesteaks or Zelda or something. And we're just going to be like a perfect monk or something like that. And that's not how it works. It's like the consciousness, awareness, enlightenment principle is alive and breathing in and through all things. And so for you to carry like loving awareness in you does not require you to really get rid of anything other than the stuff that's not loving and aware. And so it's like, there's different ways to play Zelda, you know, and what I'm saying, when I just, it's important to me that as I'm saying this, like I'm not trying to toot my own horn in front of your listeners. I'm trying to tell your listeners to like, do what Ken Kesey once told me is put your good where it does the most. Mm. It's like, figure out what is the stuff that you're, you can be like so passionate and alive about that whatever f- fools and assholes are going to do foolish asshole stuff that you're kind of like, oh, okay. And then you just leave them in the dust because you're too busy doing you. The, or the hip hop way of saying that would be like. Get in where you fit in. Victory is the revenge kind of a thing. Sure. Living well is the best revenge. My dad told me that once. And too short. Our great sage too short said, get in where you fit in. And truer words have never been spoken. <laughs> All right. Well, that's, that satisfies, that scratches the itch. I, uh, I don't know if you have any, I guess maybe the, you know, if you want to plot revenge, we can do it after the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, kidding. no, no, it's, no, it's, it's, it's more just like part of me really is of all the things to be anxious about in this world. <laughs> One of the things that I'm anxious about is the appropriation of sacred medicines and of mm-hmm. the mind, you know. And it's not like this is new to the, the conversation in the psychedelic space, you know. I mean, it's MK Ultra. Anybody like this stuff? It's, this has been going on forever, on some level. Mm-hmm. But the fact is that, like, it does strike me as a matter of concern. I guess this is kind of really what I'm getting at. It's like psychedelics were the temporary autonomous zone and that mm-hmm. that zone is now becoming regulated and i guess i'm i'm kind of in the camp of like decriminalization rather than <laughs> rather than legalization on some level i am concerned about the ways that structures of power and and control and exploitation are making a very visible bid on some of the most wild and free and, and intimate and, and holy areas of my, you know, at least like these are, these are places it's like Fern Gully or something, you know, it's like mm-hmm. watching the Your avatar. Yeah. It's like watching the sacred grove getting burned by strip mining. And I guess that's, that's sort of my question really is more like, and maybe you've already answered it in the way that you did. Well, no, the thing is, is that's not my department. I mean, I would love to tell you that, like, there's really better people about that than me. When I go into that sort of stuff, it it, it doesn't work. 
and I don't know if that sounds like a cop out, but I do think that there does have to be a division of labor in all communities. There's always a division of labor in all communities. It would be like if somebody was were to tell you to, you know, play the trumpet and you're like, I play the guitar. And I said, that's a cop out. Uh -huh is how I feel about it is just like, I would love to be able to answer those questions and do that, do stuff to help fix that. But I, I can't, you know, I, I also learned a long time ago that I work with people. Someone gave me a yoga class full of teenagers once at a charter school in Philly. It's like, in a, a tough part of Philly underprivileged part of Philly. Those kids did not want to do yoga. <laughs> like they wanted to not do yoga much more than I wanted to teach them yoga. We discovered, <laughs> I mean, I was like committed, but like I was committed as a guy who's used to teaching grownups who really want to do yoga, who carve out time in their day and carve out money out of their budget in order to like come and practice yoga. And I was pretty good at that. And I realized, Oh, my demographic is people who want to learn people who want to change and grow. I don't have a lot to offer people who want to fight me. I just, <laughs> I, I just, I just don't. And so that's how I move through the world. And that's also, yeah, that's how I move through the world is, is who is, who wants to work with me as much as I want to work with them. And, and if it's not Christian Angermeyer, you know, it's like, I don't, I, what can I do? What can I do if Christian Angermeyer like doesn't want to, he's not, he doesn't call me. I, he could find me. He could inbox me. He doesn't want to. What am I going to do? It sucks, but you know, I, I don't. I just don't have it in me. Sorry. No, no, not at all. I just, <laughs> I'm in a way. I'm just glad. I'm glad to hear that these things don't. I think, in a way, you know, asking this question is really more just about excavating where my own identity attachments lie. It's like watching your childhood neighborhood getting gentrified or something and just being like, you know, that's an opportunity to, it's not like a necessarily railing against the developers so much as it is just like acknowledging that things change and that people are going to grow up in this neighborhood and, and think it's just fine in the new way, you know, and that it, it's not like. And I don't want to spiritually bypass it. Like it's nothing. I'm not trying to like spiritually buy it's, it's my, it's, we were talking about our limitations earlier yeah. that you can think in a, in a million dimensions. It's like, I can't force venture capitalists to behave differently or anybody. I can't really, yeah, I can't fix that. I would like to see his art collection. If Angermeyer is listening to this, like I, you know, it's like, I don't even have to tell him he's evil. You know, it's like, I would just as soon talk about meditation and look at your art because I sort of have the thought that, you know, doing meditation with people nourishes them in some way and nourish people make better choices. Maybe that's naive of me, but I've got enough data. I've got enough data that I can stand behind nourish people make better choices. So dogleggedness this for the, like, if we're tying a bow on this conversation, then you kind of have to like, take it and loop it back around and pull, pull the little twist. I like ending the, these discussions and I haven't in a while with an invitation to think about the people listening to this in, you know, 100, 200, 500 years. 
I mean, it's ridiculous on some level to assume that this will still be around or that anyone will hear it. But let's let's imagine that it's they, the only thing that's going to be. Oh yeah, it's it's just I will have accidentally programmed the Future Fossils archive into the DNA of some uh, runaway nanotech that gray goos the entire planet, and all that's left is backups of this show. Somebody suggested to me they show there was oh it was a meme and it was a video of like people dancing at like a jam band show. It was just like lose like losing it. Like there was like three people who are really going for it. And it, the quote was like, what if this was the only record? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What if, what if fish lot was all that we knew of mm-hmm. the 21st century. But so, yeah, that's, that's it basically is just, you know, like if, if uh, folks hear this conversation and, and this is what they know of you, and your fa- fabulous Instagram does not survive, and mm-hmm. you know nothing of the psilocybin summit persists. Then, what haven't you said in this conversation that you would hope to convey into that future? And then also, you know, given that they're probably quite good at at tripping in a hundred years, you know, like that they've okay. they've hacked some stuff that we have not yet hacked. Like they know how to integrate at, you know, in ways that, that would marvel us. Right. They don't really need integration circles. It's built into right. society. Right. They just have it on lock. Like, so, you know, what would you, uh, the one thing, if you don't you say, get it together. Hear? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if you're not there yet, get it together. Um, if you are there yet, um, we're just, we're really proud of you. You know, we've been working really hard so that that's who you could be. And being that you know that love is unbounded by time or space, you know, if nobody has told you lately, like, we, we love you, like, deeply. Like, you're, you're loved more than you know. And that's it. That's all I got. Well, that's beautiful. Daniel, I I, uh, I love your heart, man. I think that you are just such a lighthouse of a person and that you remind me to be a more decent and, and loving human being. And so I just want to thank you for, for doing your work and for taking the time to talk and for putting on this cool event that I get to be a part of in a couple weeks. And, don't uh, you have a, don't you have a coupon code? Oh, I I I will find it somewhere, and I will put it in the intro and outro and show notes, and I'll I'll get Skywriter. I am um, just that you love my heart. I love your mind. You know, I I'm, I'm sure that you're also aware that you know your 99 percent creative thinking is 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 well deserved. I don't think that it's a mistake and the ways that you push things and connect things is um, well, I'm also grateful. I feel like I'm grateful that you allow me to keep up. I know you could, I know you could zoom away. I know you could run off. Like, you know, I feel like I'm jogging, I'm running with somebody who's like keeping pace with me. And so I appreciate that. (laughs) And I'm really, really glad that you've been a part of, you know, so many of our events and, and brought that, that gift, gift to the events. Uh, what is that like? I have a graduate degree in in mental bondage. 
<laughs> I don't know what that means. Or just like you just like ran off. You just <laughs> well, you were saying earlier, like that. You know, like there's a you think in a hundred dimensions. It's like a you're just better at, at bondage. You know, mm-hmm. and maybe that's maybe that's true. But you know, you're good. It's it's not just that's not all of it. There's more to it than that. There's an old song I'll play in the in the outro to this episode that I wrote about God playing bondage with itself, and that that's what all of this is. Mm-hmm. It's just uh, you know, we we tie on our blinds and fetters, but we know no better. That's the that's the compassion part, right? Like it's it's all right. It's okay that we do this. It's okay that you you know, if that's what it takes for you to be as loving of a person as you are to tell yourself that like, that you're not that smart, then, you know, that's a self-deception in the form of a truth that I will accept as the instrument that you use in order to be humbly available and present to people rather than Mm. sort of super villain. Right. Well, you know, I'm, I only, I really haven't caught myself saying that a lot. I'd say it in front of you. (laughs) <laughs> but um it's all okay i mean i definitely believe that it's all okay whatever we're gonna do is you know on one level you know on like on the level where like spiritual bypassy stuff is true yeah. you know it's like there's a part of us that you know is content and loving in the face of whatever yeah but, uh, so at least we got that going for us which is nice Thank you for reminding me, and I'm sure many of the, the folks listening to this. Where did you catch the reference? Wait, what? Did you catch the reference, the pop culture reference? No. So we have that going for us, which is nice? Oh, yes, Caddyshack. <laughs> yes. Yeah, folks, it's Bill Murray Gold right there. Well, all right, yeah. Daniel, this is great. Maybe I get you back on for a, a group conversation at some point because I think yeah that would be fun in a different way. Oh, cool. Who, who's going to be in the group? I don't know. You name them. You find the people that you think would have the most humorous panel discussion for future fossils. Okay. We're, going, we're going for fun. Yeah, because I think you are a, a sharp fucking cookie to be these memes. Mm-hmm. You know, skill recognizes skill as far as like <laughs> the encoding of complex information into something that really zings, you know? Mm-hmm. So like, you know who the, uh, the other sharp cookies are that we could get on a, a uh, don't eat that cookies. They're all too sharp kind of a conversation. Right. Just boof them. Just, <laughs> you got to grind them into a powder so that they don't. Yeah. Right. All right. Well, mix cool, them, man. Mix them with lion's mane. Oh God. Yeah. All right. Well, this this is this is fun. Um, I will end the recording here. Oh,
chose this blood and juice Cause it's no fun to dine alone And dine on what and what's the use We know no better We tie on our blinds and fetters And curse the weather We are lost in pursuit Thank you. 